0: Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast hosted by myself Hannah Hickinbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals so tread lightly check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations.
1: Be- Recording in progress. <laughs> Okay, right. How do I make it so that I can hear you through my headphones, but it right.
0: I'm you have to that. put the headphones on. <laughs> Thanks for that. That's really helpful. That's, that's all right. All right. I'm just, just helping. Today I'm joined by Alex. Al- oh, it's been a long day. I want to say Alex. You're not Alex, you're Alice. No, I'm
1: not an Alex. Also, is
0: it is it Mac or Muck? Mac. Mac Bane. Mm-hmm. MacBain. What am I thinking of? I'm I'm thinking of Bruce Wayne. It's not anything like your name. (laughs) Yeah, God. Alice McBain, Bruce Wayne. Okay. Today I am joined by Alice McBain, also known as Bruce Wayne. (laughs) <laughs> an ambassador of Rosier Goodness, as well as an advocate for PCOS, mental health, size inclusion and the LGBTQ plus community. Alice joins us today to discuss disordered eating, identity, medication, therapy and PCOS. Hello, Alice. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me. I feel like I've had so much fun already. I don't know where <laughs> this episode is going to just, I'm just so excited. The
1: chaotic energy I bring to the room is... <laughs>
0: It's it's absolute <laughs> I love it when someone comes on and they're just like so full of energy and I can be so full of energy and we're just like bouncing off each it's, it's the best yeah. yeah absolutely so first thing that I want to talk to you about today is disordered eating um so it's a big it's a big I mean that is just so broad isn't it I want to talk to you about disordered eating so I yeah. guess let's start with your I guess, relationship with food and kind of how you determined that you maybe had a disordered relationship with food?
1: Mm. I mean, like many of our generation, um, the sort of first idea of it was presented to me through a TikTok. Um, it's terrible. I hate admitting that, but it's true.
0: Well, um, I don't like TikTok, but if it helps people, then there we go.
1: Yeah, my yeah, my feed, there's a lot of... Um, of mental health stuff on my on my TikTok feed. So I actually quite enjoy it. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I'd heard the words in a different order. Um, I'd heard them as eating disorder rather than disordered eating. Yeah, And I don't know what it was. I'm an English student. I spent four years at university and I'd never flipped the words around. <laughs> I was like that is the order they have to be in yeah so when someone started talking about disordered eating I was kind of like oh, okay that's new mm-hmm. um and I started looking at my own relationship with food and the moments I've turned to it kind of for um comfort or used it as um something to control the classic I can't control things in my life so I'll control you know food and I realized that I actually have had quite uh, um toxic relationships with food in the past um and it it truly took me until about last year to recognize that um I looked at things very black and white and and through that lens of um, this is how you should look and act if you have an eating disorder rather than it's individual to each person. And um, you have your own experience, you have your own um, relationships with food that have come through nurture, through media consumption, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and I discovered the, the horror of things like MyFitnessPal, Um, I let that ruin my life for a while um, like many and even now I still have you know those those kind of call them little little bad thoughts but I'm better at at being able to recognize them I, I told my therapist this morning when I get those little voices that say something I tell them to am I allowed to swear yeah why not i tell them to fuck off
0: um so that's what they deserve so yeah <laughs>
1: thank you <laughs> um rather than letting them kind of eat into me um pun not intended um <clears throat> so it was a surprise revelation really mm. for me
0: i think you're right i think as, as sad as it is i think i don't even think it's our generation you know i think disordered eating has been here for I don't want to say forever but for a really long time and I think actually you know my mum won't mind me saying this but her kind of generation I've had so many conversations with her and she's done stuff that is so disordered but it was just completely normalized um actually we were talking the other day that she used to use laxatives and I'm like mum that's that's not okay and, but her mum used them and she she just thought that that was what you were supposed to do and her friends used them so it's kind of it was normalized for her yeah i'm really glad that as a society we've reached a point where we talk about disordered eating but i guess like you said i think i mean i don't want to say everybody has a disordered relationship with food because like you said we've all got our own relationship but i guess where do you think we sort of draw the line as to what's eating, what's disordered eating and what's an eating disorder. Oh yeah. I think that is a very
1: complex one and a very subjective one, but I think I found that when, when my decisions around food started impacting the way that I was, Kind of into interacting with other people or trying to interact with other people and trying mm-hmm. to live my life. Looking back, I recognize now that that wasn't just eating that was disordered eating because yeah, there was you know a, a really it was having an impact on my life um, in more aspects than one. Um, but I also wasn't always kind of it it didn't consume me um it it was tied to how my mental health was at the time um and having not experienced an eating disorder I actually don't know
0: Mm. what
1: that line would be but I know for me the line between kind of just being able to exist and eat as a person and you know having very disordered kind of relationship with food it was it was the kind of when it when it was bad it was all consuming and then I would be able to kind of move on and um work through that um I don't know I I mean do you have an idea of where the line draws for you I
0: don't know I think um I think it's a really difficult one. And I think it's not something that we can just say, okay, so here's a graph, here's like a timeline. Let's mm-hmm. like like a timeline of here's eating. I'm doing quite much here normally because I don't know what normal eating is. Yeah. Um, here's disordered eating and here's an eating disorder. I don't yeah. think you can literally like put a line in there and say, okay, this is the point where we we kind of draw that gap but Mm. I do think I agree with you in terms of maybe the I guess I don't know what the right word is because I don't want to say control because I'm going Mm. off the word control kind of in eating disorders but I think the kind of impact I would say that it Mm. has maybe um like you've kind of described there in that or maybe not even impact maybe just like or Maybe it is impact. I don't know. I Maybe the word will come to me as I'm thinking, mm. but I see disordered eating as having a disordered relationship with food. So like you've said, sometimes that will impact the way that you eat or it might impact the way that you socialize, but it doesn't have like an all consuming aspect on your life. Whereas an eating yeah. disorder is almost the way I see it the individual almost becomes the eating disorder and that's right. like their identity but again this, this is too this is generalizing I think this uh, is the problem with defining them is that everybody is so different um and I don't want to sit here and say you know this is what an eating disorder is because yeah then that might deter somebody from going to get help they might just think oh it's just an uncomfortable relationship with food yeah. um and equally on the flip side of that, I don't think I've ever had a relationship with food that is healthy. I think it's always been disordered. So for mm. me, <laughs> having a disordered relationship is normal. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I,
1: I totally get that. And, and actually, as I talk about my relationship with food and in the past, and there are times where I've thought, maybe I have had an eating disorder and I should go and talk to someone about that. But again, because I can't tell because... It is so subjective and everyone's normal is different because there is no such thing Mm. as normal. And in my case, weirdly enough, actually, even though I've always had issues with body image, whenever I had a a toxic relationship with food, it often actually wasn't related to my body image, which is not, I've only just noticed this, but it was usually tied to, how I was doing mentally in terms of my anxiety would then impact how I was then eating. But it wasn't actually anything to do with my body image. Whereas I thought, I think I thought at the time it was, but Mm. yeah, looking back, it it had no link, you know, especially not conscious link to that. Um, It was just, I'm so anxious. I can't even leave my my bed let alone my apartment to go and do food shopping so here we are three weeks later and I still haven't gone food shopping and I don't order food so you know um it it wasn't about how I looked it was I I physically wasn't able to Mm. feed myself if that makes sense
0: yeah I think that's that's really interested me because it just shows the kind of range of ways mental health can present itself eating disorders can present Mm. themselves all of that because I mean I I might be making an assumption I don't know whether you said it this explicitly but maybe as the depression or the anxiety got worse Mm -hmm. the disordered eating equally got worse but it wasn't directly like I'm anxious so I'm not going to eat it was more I'm anxious so I can't get out to get food therefore I'm not eating as much whereas In my experience, mine has been um when the depression or the anxiety has been bad, it that makes me feel so numb to the eating disorder that I almost eat normally norm, normally. Interesting. But then when the depression and the anxiety are more control, not controlled, but like um, you know, I'm doing the right things that are positive to um relieve them a little bit. The eating disorder is like this is my time to shine like I've got space now because the depression is not numbing everything or whatever mm. so then I'm then more fixated about the way that I look and it's almost like there's there's less to think about because I'm not being as anxious anymore so now I'm like okay now let's just absolutely go to ham hock on the way that we look and stop eating.
1: Interesting I would be really interested to hear from other people if mm-hmm. they've had similar experiences to you or to me and and maybe like what they've ended up whether they have an eating disorder or just have a yeah, disorder yeah i think that'd be really
0: interesting
1: yeah because i'm wondering if there's a tie between when you have an eating disorder it, that's when it can kind of like live on its own whereas my disordered eating is is tied to my
0: other mental health issues mm-hmm interesting it's very interesting and I, th- I think there will be people on both sides um mm. but I think I think and maybe I'm generalizing here too much and you know you'd want to look at the research but maybe disordered eating is kind of a conjunction to anxiety and depression whereas anxiety and depression come in conjunction with an eating disorder
1: mm, yes yeah I'd be really interested to mm. to know more about that yeah I just need to cough. I'm sorry.
0: That's okay. (coughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm I'm sure the research is out there, but if not, then somebody go grab the opportunity because that would be really, really interesting. Um, I guess on the topic of depression and anxiety, um, I wanted to talk to you about medication therapy and Mm -hmm. I guess the stigma, um, attached to that so I wondered if you could maybe give us an overview I don't want to belittle it at all um of I guess your journey with medication and with therapy kind of how did that come about for you how did you feel Mm. how does it make you feel now
1: yeah um wow let's let's travel back in time um (laughs) with Alice um I the first time that I kind of experienced any kind of like counseling or anything was actually at school. My first off, my tutor tried to uh, take me to the counselors, but they weren't in. And then I had such a, a violent breakdown um, in class that um, uh, one of my friends just took me and sat outside the nurse's office until they called up a counselor because I couldn't stop crying. And, um, Got very dehydrated it was not fun I can um, imagine all
0: those tears
1: yeah I was crying solidly for about an hour um wow. with no no water intake um so yeah bit of a headache after that um I hope you had a and- packet of salty crisps as well
0: after all that salt
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> some water and some and some sodium yeah um so I then sort of started seeing the school counselor a little bit and that was that was useful for what I needed at the time. Um, I then went through my university's kind of counseling service uh, in first year and at Leeds Uni, at least when I was there, it was sort of, it wasn't the worst and it wasn't the best. Mm. You, the waiting list was long as always, um, but I did get through the waiting list And then they would do four sessions or four or five sessions and then close your case. But you could come back. You'd just have to open a new, you'd be a new patient, even though you'd already been there once before, which was just an odd way to do things. It was fine for me because the counselor I ended up seeing was fantastic. And she basically like eked out a couple of extra sessions by being like, well, we got short cut short this other week. So um you know let's tackle a little bit on this one so I really appreciated that um and it did help a little bit but not enough because it was only a few sessions and it felt very it was exhausting enough mentally to reach out in the first place but to have to do it again yeah I was like I don't think I have the emotional capacity to do that so I didn't um And it wasn't until I came back, actually in America, I got some counselling because I developed uh, something called dyspnea. So from my anxiety where I couldn't breathe properly Um, and I had to have, oh, I had to navigate the American um, health insurance system. Oh, God. Uh, Cried. I just cried. Um, Probably didn't uh, help the anxiety, did it? No. I had had a chest x-ray. It, it was, it was terrifying. Cause we didn't know if it was my lungs. I always honestly quite horrifying. Um, but they referred me to their counseling, um, service, which was great. And was, um, I got to see someone nigh on straight away. Um, and she was wonderful. And she just looked after me until I left America. Um, um, but it hadn't, solved anything it was very much a temporary measure and Mm. my anxiety was so bad when I got back I was just I'd always had a low level of anxiety but at this point my daily level of anxiety was at its maximum um and I just my heart was constantly you know going at 100 miles an hour and I just I I couldn't see things any further ahead than about a minute because Mm. I just I was so wrapped up in in all the feelings I had, so I reached out to my GP and I went to see her, and she suggested medication. And I had a feeling she was going to suggest medication, and I was quite scared because I just didn't know anyone else on medication. I didn't mm. didn't know anything about it. Um, but she gave me a prescription and picked it up, and then my my parents drove us on it on a day out to to Bosom uh, near where I live. And I just cried in the back of the car for about half an hour because I felt really confused and I didn't know whether I wanted to take medication. I didn't know if that meant that I was doing something wrong. Um, I I just didn't know anything um, as I think a lot of people experience. Just not knowing what it means to be on medication. And there's the huge stigma of, well, if you need to be on medication, then something's really wrong with you, which is not true at all. Um, but I thought it through and I I visualized it as my brain was like a balloon and everything had popped. And it, it was like it, it was in space and everything was drifting away from me. And without the medication, I couldn't. Every time I grabbed one thing, everything else was disappearing. Mm. And the medication was a little like a scooper to help me get Mm. everything in so that I could then get some therapy to help put everything back in and keep it together so I saw it as a as a helping hand and then reached out and I've now been seeing my therapist um for two years roughly Mm. almost two years um been on medication for about the same amount of time and it's definitely helped a
0: lot yeah yeah, I think there is a massive stigma against taking medication. Um, mm. I think, I don't know kind of what the stigma even is. It just, it whether it's an internalized stigma or whether it's just present everywhere, I, I don't know. But I think a lot of the time when people go and they're told that they need to go on medication, there's a lot of shame. But mm. also I mm. think I think sometimes people think, I don't want to go on medication because it's like a short-term fix, or it's just kind of a plaster. Mm-hmm. It's not actually, it's not going to sort me out long-term. Um, yeah. But where the way I see it personally is, like you've just said, it gets you to a point that you can engage in therapy. Um, mm. And for me personally, I, I um was on some antidepressants. Initially I was on like anti-anxiety medication, literally just because my IBS was so bad from being so anxious, I couldn't, I was getting to the point where I couldn't eat. And obviously yeah. for somebody that's got eating disorder history, that's not great. Um, yeah. but then I guess they kind of realized it was more on the depression side of things. And now I'm having therapy and I've come off the medication, but it just gave me that kind of step up to to say I think a lot of the time you can it almost becomes your um baseline of feeling Mm. like that and you don't recognize that things are wrong until you then get picked up a little bit and then I think that gives you the chance to reach out like you've said um Mm. do you think the same or do you think that you will want to be on medication I really don't know um I spoke to uh
1: someone that my mum works with, uh, I wanted to get in contact with her because I've been on Sertraline for two years, um, over two years. And I was like, I feel like that's a long time to be on the same dose. And I was like, I don't know if it's actually doing anything anymore. Um, uh, Because when I first went on it, I was, I became, at first I would have like, just these insane bursts of energy like coursing through my body and my mum would have to take me for a walk to walk Mm. it off like you would with a dog like I was just I was buzzing I I would say I would say my the atoms in my body are vibrating Mm. and then I would dissociate constantly and I I would only catch about 50% of the time that I was doing it um whereas I now still dissociate a lot more than I ever used to but I, I thought I don't know if it's doing anything anymore so I contacted her and said, I know you've changed medication a few times, what was your experience? Um, And she said to me, she was like, I've tried coming off altogether. And she just said, I've accepted now that my brain doesn't do what it's supposed to. It Mm. it can't do that. So I'll be on medication for the rest of my life and I'm okay with that. Um, So I think it is again, classic so dependent on the person absolutely. Um, you know I'm on so sertraline is an SSRI so it helps my brain retain any serotonin that it does produce to kind of keep me going um, and my brain just doesn't process serotonin properly and if we think about it like you know with someone who's diabetic and needs I insulin shots say that. yeah you wouldn't deny someone that um you also wouldn't deny yourself paracetamol if you had a yeah. headache so for me it's very much if I do need to be on this for the rest of my life that's fine with me yeah. um not everyone will and I might turn around um and say actually I want to lower the dosage or I want to come off it all and see what my life is like without it because I haven't known myself without medication for two years and so that's kind of odd for me mm-hmm. um so I'd be curious to see what I'm like but I have no problem with people wanting to start it or come off it I just I always worry when someone thinks that it's the fix-all like yeah. go on medication and tick that box um, because it absolutely is not the the fix um and in conjunction with things like therapy and mindful practices and anything that works for you so some people that's doing yoga is just a really peaceful place for them to be and helps with their mental health um you know exercise all those kinds of things um but if we're going to rely on medication alone, I think that's where issues start, yeah, developing.
0: I think you've knocked the nail on the head there in that you have to do what's right for you.
1: Absolutely, I totally, I agree. I think I have. I'm very, very lucky to have not only a, a wonderful therapist, but also very supportive family and and mm. friends. And um, I mean, most of my family and friends aren't on medication, but you know, I was speaking to my flatmate and said, if I do decide to lower my dosage slash come off, um, you know, we've been best friends for over 10 years. So we know each other pretty well. And and I said, you know, I'd, I'd love if you were happy to just keep an eye and, out and see if you notice anything and any yeah you know toxic habits returning or anything like that and she was she's more than happy to do that as and as and when um because it's much harder to recognize in yourself than it is for someone else to see um but I wouldn't consider changing something if I didn't have that support network um because I'd just be so terrified it was terrifying enough kind of going on it and not knowing how it would change me and I think that's what a lot of people are afraid of with medication Mm. is if it will change you and I think for me initially yes it it sort of did it made me very numb and then all the feelings came back in one big lump and that was very overwhelming but again my chemical makeup is different to someone else's and um you know I I feel like it was a temporary kind of shift um from my body adjusting to having new things in it
0: (laughs) yeah yeah exactly I think that's the thing isn't it It, your body does need time to adjust also just like respecting that like you've said it isn't the cure for everything but also I think a lot of people think okay here's this little tablet and as soon as I take it I'm gonna be the most happy person in the whole world I'm never gonna have a sad thought ever again Mm -hmm. but it's 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 literally it like lines with how I see eating disorder recovery as um overall you know yes things will be better but it's Mm. almost like you were saying earlier about the disordered thoughts in that you might have a sad moment or you might have a disordered moment about food but you know how to manage it and you're in a Mm -hmm. better place to manage it rather than having that thought and then being like okay well we're just going to stay with this for five months and that, that's life now yeah yeah
1: it's it's like having you know how you put a kid in a booster seat in the back of a car <laughs> like yeah. just to you know make them more comfortable whatever it's kind of like having a little booster seat and mm-hmm. also there are different types of of antidepressants so I mean I'm on an antidepressant for my anxiety so the name is misleading in itself <laughs> um, and that's I just call them meds to be honest because I just think yeah. it's easier um but you know, talking to to this, um, to this colleague of my mum's, she was saying that one of the medications she tried for her just made her about 100 times more anxious. And she was like, the whole point that I'm on this is just to reduce my anxiety. Um, whereas for other people I know who've been on the same medication, it was perfect for them. Yeah. So it's not, a you know, a one-size-fits-all Um But again, that's really difficult because like we were talking about with the therapy and and the counselling at university where you you then have to go back through the process again, reaching out to your GP to say, hey, can I try a different medication is really daunting. And knowing that you have to wean yourself off and then wean yourself on to a new one and you don't know how it's going to affect your body and your mind. I think that's part of why I put it off for a while because I just there was never a right moment to do mm-hmm. that.
0: Yeah.
1: Um and it yeah it's it's difficult to navigate and especially if doctors appointments and things give you a lot of anxiety but it, it it's something that's worth doing if you can work up the kind of confidence if you're not happy on the medication you're on
0: mm-hmm. change it. Yeah. I guess what would your advice be if somebody's listening and they're thinking, you know, maybe I want to change my medication or I want to start medication or I want to come off mm. the medication? What What would you advise somebody to do in that situation?
1: I'm a big fan of lists.
0: I love mm. lists.
1: So um, when I'm having bad brain days, I, I tend to journal and I'll often make lists in that journal. It's not really sort of Coherent thoughts, but if I've noticed that I'm feeling a certain type of way, I write down all the things that might be causing that feeling, and I might do this uh, the same thing for if I'm weighing up a decision in my mind. So, for for any of those situations, writing down things like pros and cons, like pros of going on medication, it might help my anxiety. Cons uh, it might cause me side effects that I don't want. Um, and when it comes to potentially having to like reach out to a GP or something um again write down what you want to say you don't Mm -hmm. have to read that as a script but I will pretty much always or at least I used to I'm a lot better at kind of being spontaneous now but I used to write out all the things that I wanted to discuss um and you know almost like an entire kind of speech to say um because rather it would stop me from going over it in my mind over and over and over and ruminating and would help when I came to talk to them. If I was anxious, I knew that I had my notes in front of me to refer to, to make it just that, that a little bit easier to communicate. Um, And I'd also say as hard as it is, I've had plenty of really horrible experiences with GPs who have been quite uh, they've caused me to cry like I've switched GP surgeries purely because of that one GP like I know how horrifying it is when someone doesn't take you seriously but just try again with some somewhere new someone new don't be afraid to say I don't want to see this doctor I want to see a different one um you you know you're valid and you're what you need is valid
0: Absolutely. I love the idea of the list. Um, I literally do that every therapy session. I like each week I'll have a notepad next to me or like wherever I go. And if something pops up in my head, I write it down so that then I can take it because otherwise you just forget and I'm very good at getting carried away with, yeah, I'm fine, everything's going great. And then actually you look back at the week and you think, "Mm -hmm." I don't know quite how okay that actually was. Um, but I guess then you just don't get overwhelmed, do you, with and kind of caught up in the moment and forget things exactly definitely okay so I want to talk to you about identity um this is something I'm really really interested to talk about you Mm -hmm. uh, talk about you talk about (laughs) with you so I want to talk about the intersection between body image disordered eating and gender identity Mm -hmm. Um, So I know we've kind of had a discussion about this before. And um, you said to me that you identify as queer, but for you, that's been something that has taken quite a lot of time maybe to reflect on and understand. So I Mm -hmm. guess my question is, how, how did that all tie together in terms of kind of understanding your gender and identity? And then how did that tie into your body image and disordered eating?
1: Mm. what well, it was it's quite a
0: recent thing,
1: my gender identity, like it wasn't a crisis, but it was a a moment. Um, and also then recognizing how that um, tied in with my body image. Um, because it I had my good old struggle with sexuality for years and years and years, and there was a lot of internalized, homophobia, biphobia, you know, all the phobias. Um, And it it took me a long time to not just accept who I was, but to be able to, you know, for a long time, I couldn't even say the word bisexual without being like cringing inside. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I, you know, got that down pat and was like, yeah, I feel good about that and uh, started I you know identifying as queer as well because for me that term I find very inclusive for all aspects of myself and and I really like it I know it's not to everyone's taste um but you know it works for me sorry if yes
0: for people listening they're not quite sure what that means
1: it's kind of subjective. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a reclaimed word um, used to be used as a derogatory term yeah. um, to describe uh, members of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and uh, it generally, all sorts of people can use it. Trans people, bi people, um, gay people. You know, it, it it's like you take LGBTQ plus and then just put it in a, under an umbrella that says queer Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um so it's an all-encompassing term but because of some of its because of its roots not everyone in the community is necessarily comfortable with it um but I'd say probably the majority are um but yeah it's a it's a personal thing but so for me it just means I'm part of the of the LGBTQ plus community um uh so I had always been very comfortable cis woman, um, cisgender, meaning um, s- still continuing with the gender I was assigned at birth and comfortable with that. Um, and then I met more trans non-binary people, talked to them about some of their experiences of their gender identity. And that kind of just slowly I want to use the word percolated but I'm not sure if that's the right word but you know it, it's it's sort of simmered in my brain for a while and I started to recognize that I would say I'm woman adjacent um and I I think the, the best way to describe it would be you know how when you get a laptop it's all got its like default kind of factory settings Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and then over time you adjust it and you maybe delete things off it and add things to it and and maybe if you're a bit of a tech whiz you can change some of the software and you adjust the hardware and over time it's not really the same laptop that you bought initially but if you were to reset it to factory settings it would go back to the way it was you know right at the origin. Yes, that's sort of how I feel like my factory setting if you if you put pinhole reset me would be women <laughs> okay <laughs> society's vision of women yep that's not how I would how I see myself and how I identify um so I think it's a I want to distance myself from a societal construction of yeah of a woman and femininity um so I sort started thinking, okay, well, what pronouns are most comfortable for me, and recognize that I like she, they, because it's a little bit of a of an FU to the binary, but still takes into account that I still do feel like a woman in some sense, and um, and then recently I was uh, going to, I was going out for um, a couple of drinks to kind of somewhere that you can't just wear but trackies <laughs> um, and I thought well I, I don't want to wear a dress actually I don't want to dress myself up in the ultra feminine way that I've always defaulted to and mm-hmm. um, when I put on an outfit that felt a little more gender neutral to me, all of these terms being used talking about like, you know, society's construction of women wear dresses, men wear trousers kind of thing, which I don't believe in. But I looked in the mirror and I just thought, yeah, that's me. I haven't seen me in a while. (laughs) Um, And I also felt really a lot more confident in my body. And I recognised that quite a lot of my body image issues, at least recently, have not solely been to do with the way I look in terms of like my size and my weight. Um, They've actually been to do with how I express my identity and the way that I dress and the way that I, you know, the the outside of me. And that was quite a a revelation to me, to be honest. I hadn't ever thought of how they might tie together. Um, And I found a lot more confidence in myself and the way that I look just through not trying to subscribe to what I think people expect me to look like and what I, you know, I've stopped dressing myself like I expected myself to dress when I was little, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not dressing for, for 12 year old me, I'm mm. dressing for me and whatever <laughs> that means and you know clothing is a great way to express your identity um, and since we do live in a very um, gendered society and lots of things whether they should or not have kind of our um, gendered colours, clothes, toys, all sorts <laughs> you know I can't click my fingers and make that go away but I can use it to my advantage when I want to and and play with it and have fun with it and it's been very liberating.
0: I think it's really interesting what you're saying about the body image wasn't necessarily the size of your body Mm. or anything like that but more the way that you were dressing I think that was really interesting do you think that any of that linked to because I know you said earlier about your like disordered eating behaviors you felt like you couldn't control certain things so you turned to food do you think any of that linked or is that kind of two separate things for you I think
1: I I think that I can't see a strong connection there's probably something subconsciously I think everything's pretty linked but at the time as I say, a lot of my issues with, for example, food came from um, I was very unhappy at university, and I was very lonely and anxious mm. and confused, and and still kind of blossoming into my sexuality and and all of that kind of stuff. So a lot of it was very much related to I, you know, would I either have lots of food in the house or no food in the house, and there was no in between. Um, whereas more recently that's where i think i started actually thinking about my identity um and my gender identity so it's more of a a recent kind of development i think at the time it it wasn't so tied to it Mm -hmm. um yeah
0: yeah i think it's i think it's really interesting i think often we don't I guess maybe because of the society we live in, we don't give ourselves kind of the space to reflect on those sorts of things. It's like you were saying earlier about the black and white thinking, Mm. you know, society is quite black and white in that sense. Um, Mm. I I guess my question um, for you, I, I don't know how kind of to phrase this, but it's I guess the thing that's playing on my mind is, do you think that, so you were saying that as part of your body image, like mm. as you started to think about your identity and maybe started to dress less like, I guess, what was expected of you mm. um, if you align as a woman, and then you started to kind of feel good in the clothes that you were wearing. Mm. Do you think it is just about kind of doing what feels good for you and dressing in a certain way? But I guess my question with that is, how do you know, you know, for me personally, I'll put on a dress and I Mm -hmm. will feel really good. And, you know, I feel like it's a flattering dress, maybe Mm -hmm. goes off the parts of my body that I like. But how do you, and maybe you don't know this, I'm kind of posing the question, but how do you deep down know that that's for you and not for other people?
1: I don't know. I, I don't know. I think... When you say that's for you, as in, like, that style of dressing is for you and not for her.
0: I guess the the thing that I got from what you were saying was that the way that you have started to dress now, mm. that's what makes Alice happy. Yes. And that's what makes Alice feel good and mm-hmm. gives Alice that confidence. I guess what I'm asking is, in a roundabout way, how do you kind of determine the difference between that and feeling good in clothes that other people kind of make you feel good? Am I making sense or not really? As in ex- to do with external validation? I or... guess so, yeah. Because I feel like the, the way that you dress, you're getting internal validation is making you feel really good. Yeah. So how that's what I'm trying to ask is how did you determine the difference between that internal validation and the internal validation because of external validation
1: right yeah got you I because I didn't for the first time I didn't care if anyone complimented me on the way I looked I I didn't want someone to say oh you look really good today I just felt it. I looked in the mirror. I was completely on my own, and I just looked in the mirror and I went, "We look good today. We look great." <laughs> um, and I didn't feel like I was wearing a costume anymore.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I just felt like, you know, I think it's 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 like a, it's like a gateway drug. <laughs> it's it's a sort of, you know, because the way that we often express our identity is through the way we dress because that's one of the things we can change our hair our makeup or clothes and stuff and obviously as I say I don't believe that clothes should be gendered um they are in society and um and it might be I mean I wore a dress the other day no I wore a skirt um I don't want a skirt in ages but I felt good in it um And so it's not really about necessarily the actual clothes themselves. I don't, it's, it's rather ineffable. (laughs) Um, But it's, it's, it's a gut feeling, I suppose. Mm. Um, And because there were times that I would wear a dress and be like, this makes me feel good. And I don't care what anyone else thinks. This is just what makes me feel good. Um, and that just seems to have changed a little bit recently in in mm. what things make me feel good. But I was still trying to subscribe to what used to make me feel good yeah. um, and think, oh, why isn't this anymore? Um, and that was partly from the fact that my body had had changed and, and grown. Um, and it was partly because of how I wanted to to express myself,
0: mm.
1: if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, no, it does. I'm just doing a lot of reflecting in my brain if I'm honest <laughs> I guess another question so I don't know whether wrong is the the right word but do you think mm. I'm going to use wrong it might not be the right word do yeah. you think it's wrong to feel good you know feel good in clothes because certain aspects of your body that maybe are sexualized or whatever kind of you know a big bum or big boobs or small waist or whatever as a female I guess they're glorified do you think it's wrong to think damn you look good because of those things
1: right so if like there's quite a booby dress and you think like I look good because my my boobs are yeah i um no I don't think there's anything wrong with that I think I think what so yeah? I think there's nothing wrong with feeling good because those things are being, maybe like, not prioritized, but like, given given the the room spotlight. to yeah, given the spotlight. I think there's any. I think if anything, that's, that's a really wonderful thing because especially with women's bodies and and. And the kind of the female form in, and um this the I'm trying, you know, I want to be inclusive because there are women who don't have boobs for whatever reason. But like for example, let's say big bum, because everyone has a bum. Um, you know, I think being able to say, I feel good in this outfit because I think my bum looks good is really liberating. Mm-hmm. Um and a lot of, as I say, a lot of feminine bodies are very, um, sexualized. Mm-hmm. And so being able to reclaim that, I think is really important. Um, yeah. you know, a discussion I was having with, uh, with a member of my family, who's a teacher. Um, he was saying that he, after a discussion that he and I had, um, he's realized how toxic it is to um, comment on girls' skirt lengths in school Um, because we were discussing it. And he said, you know, what was your experience? And I said, honestly, it made me feel sexualized as a child. Mm. Um, It also perpetuated um, victim blaming and rape culture. Because it was like, well, your skirt's too short. It's making the male teachers uncomfortable because they can see up it when you're walking up the stairs. Yeah. And I was like, okay, why, how, how is that my problem? I, mm. I don't understand. Um, and so I think that being able to say, hey, look, I'm, I'm comfortable, I'm proud of these assets of mm. these parts of my body yeah. whether that's your bum or your or your fupa your belly or your you know I don't know ankles whatever yeah I think that's absolutely gorgeous and I completely agree you know, flaunt it <laughs> if you got got to flaunt it
0: <laughs> yeah no I I completely agree and I'm so glad you said that I think um I think sometimes people can think oh like I shouldn't kind of show off these these parts of me that might be sexualized or whatever because of the mm. things that you've just discussed but then actually it is almost like you're reclaiming them back and you know mm. oh, I've put on this dress and I feel really good but I feel good mm. for me yes. nobody else I feel good yeah. for me um and I think that I'm so glad that's kind of what you were saying as well because I completely agree in terms of I think it's about feeling good for you and that yeah. doesn't matter what feels good for you you know it could be like you said yeah, you know, dunno, it could be your hair that looks amazing or it could be mm. whatever. It it's just doing it for you, I think is yeah. the important thing.
1: I think that's a really hard thing. I constantly have this inner you know, in a dialogue, as it were, going where I think, oh God, am I putting on makeup right now for me or am I putting it on because I want to be perceived in a certain way? And again, I very much went I I, I went through that process and and now. I don't really care if people see me without makeup.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I often like to put it on when I go out because it's a form of self-expression and I like matching yeah. my eyeshadow to my hair. Um, like that's fun. Um, and I like the way I look when I have makeup on, but I also like the way I look when I don't. It's just mm-hmm. a preference. It's it's like an accessory, um, but it. I think it takes a lot of introspection to mm-hmm. be able to recognize whether you're doing something for you. Or whether yeah. you're doing it for someone else, um, and there's nothing wrong with you if you're doing it for someone else. It's more that it might not be helpful for your well-being. Yes, you know there's no blame there. If you if you find that if you realise that you're dressing for external validation, um, a lot of people do it, a lot of us do, but you know it's worth looking at and thinking, okay.
0: Does that actually make me happy? Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think, um, I think you've knocked the nail on the head in that actually doing it for you rather than somebody else will give you so much more of a clearer mind in terms of your mm. well-being because it's. I think it's that kind of unknown. You know, if you put something on and you feel really good, you know that you feel good. Mm. But if you put something on and you're doing it for the people you are never going to really know honestly what they think. So yeah. I personally have just come to the point where I'm like, even if I said to someone, do you think I look nice? They're probably mm. they might not tell me they're genuine how they feel. So yeah. might as well just dress nicely for me. Exactly. Whatever that looks like. And that's yes. different for each person. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. We have come to an exciting part. Well, I mean, it's all been exciting part of the podcast because this is a new part of the podcast that you are being I said victim to you earlier which I don't think was the right word because it makes it sound like torture and um, (laughs) it's it's not going to be torturous it's actually going to be fun so basically for everybody listening you probably might have seen on Instagram on Twitter um, but I was getting a bit bored of asking the same questions at the end of the podcast so I want to make this more inclusive and I want everyone to be involved So I'm going to start asking you a couple of days or weeks before the podcast what you want to ask. So here goes nothing. What we've been wanting to ask. So I said to you, what would you like to know about gender identity and eating disorders? Mm -hmm. The first question was, do you think gender dysphoria and eating disorders are linked? I think that there is
1: most likely a link there. I did a bit of research on it actually and found that there hasn't been much research done on it. (laughs) What a a surprise. However, there are plenty of people, I can't remember the statistics, I should have uh, have double checked it before, but there are some statistics to show that there is a, a higher risk of eating disorders for people who are experiencing gender dysphoria or transitioning. Um, and it makes sense logically to me, as I said, even just in my own experience of kind of reconciling my own gender identity and my relationship with my body and body dysmorphia um, in in all sorts of different ways. Um, sometimes it's to do with how I present myself. Sometimes it's to do with the fact that I have quite large knockers um, and sometimes they just ruin an outfit. <laughs> they just get in the way. Um, but also, you know, with the expectations that we have on the way society expects the, the kind of general man to look and the general woman to look. So, you know, if, for example, if, if you're a trans woman, you might feel the pressure to slim down because there's these expectations of women to be slim, but to have boobs and a bum at the moment, because that's the trend in women's bodies. And there are also non-binary people and and people don't believe them when they say they're non-binary because they're like, well, you have big boobs, so you can't be non-binary as if that's, you know, mutually exclusive and things like that. So, you know, it just makes sense to me that, that there is a correlation there because, you know, diet culture is so pervasive in our lives, um, as is, and it's tied to body image, um, which is often tied to how we express our ourselves and and how we're seen by society.
0: I would agree completely, and if anybody is listening that's doing research there's a new topic for you to research because I think it's something that is becoming more and more apparent and that question wasn't asked once that question was asked a few times Mm. um so I definitely think it's something that people are seeking answers for and I guess I guess I, st- I still don't think that gender identity is probably spoken about as openly as it should be yeah. I think a lot of people are talking about it more but mm. not as much as um as we should be I think people yeah. still are com- uncomfortable unsure and so I think you know if you are struggling with your gender identity and you kind of I guess go towards to sort of for comfort that's two things mm. that aren't spoken about pretty strong stigmas against them as well so I can imagine that would be a really challenging situation to be in Mm. um so thank you for that and then the second question is do you think embodiment in eating disorders and gender identity are related
1: yes I think similar to, to the previous question how you understand your body and how you connect with that um doesn't just come in the form of of how you look when you when you look in the mirror um you know whether you look at yourself and think oh I look really fat and that's a negative thing or, or whatever but also as I said you know there are people who get that gender dysphoria because their their body doesn't look the way it does kind of in their mind um And so that disconnect, and I, I, I get that. I'll look in the mirror and be like, Oh, I forgot. That's what I look like. Because for some reason I have this, this image of myself, um, that's completely different to, to my body. And that used to be quite a sore point for me, but now I think it's just how I visualize myself knowing myself, if that makes sense and all aspects of, of who I am and my personality, um, it's sort of like a little, a little emblem of me, um, because I I I can't change my DNA, um, so you know. Okay, this is the body that I I inhabit. I was born in, but um, but I can see how f- there are people who who could experience that that disconnect, and it's very upsetting. And hurtful for them yeah um so yeah I I would say that there's definitely a a link there um absolutely
0: you know I would be really interested what that question has kind of provoked for me is body dysmorphia Mm -hmm. in people who are struggling with their gender identity um I can imagine that would be really difficult I mm. struggled with body dysmorphia for quite a few years and I think it's still in terms of my what I need to keep chipping away at it's one thing definitely yeah. um and for me that's always been kind of you know there's certain ideals that I want to aim for and in, in my head and never look like them but I can imagine you know if you're not sure about your gender I can imagine that will cause a lot of body dysmorphia when you're looking at yeah. and it, I guess it's not even it's like you were saying before it's not even what you look like in the mirror it's mm. I think a lot of the time that a lot of work people do in eating disorders is how they feel internally because you, you just give a really good example of you know when people say I feel fat well fat's not mm. a feeling so like what yeah. actually does that mean to you you yeah. know, for somebody that could mean I'm really happy, but for other people mm. that could be mean I'm I'm really sad or I'm disgusted or whatever. Yeah. And so there's a whole host of things there that I'm just like, like, you know, wow. I mean, if there's not a connection, then I'm shocked.
1: Yes. I think there's a lot the thing is, I think there's a route to a lot of things. And it's like it's the mother of of all of these. Yeah. You know, they branch out from it and you know, I, I have experienced body dysmorphia since I was young um, and now I'm exp- experiencing it in a slightly different way because I'm reconciling with the fact that I have very like feminine in inverted commas features and, and you know, big boobs and a big bum And I'm like, "Uh but that's what society thinks a woman should look like, but that's not how I, you know, and and looking in the mirror. And as I said, sometimes I'm like, this is ruining my outfit and ruining how I want to. And it's taking me time to just gently, as you say, chip away at that and reconcile that. Um, But the feeling, as I said before, the gut feeling of what makes you feel good and, and how you feel, I used to use, you know, I feel fat to mean I I am unhappy with my body and how I look and it's making me sad Um, because society tells me I, I shouldn't be fat because that's wrong. Whereas now, it's another word I've reclaimed for myself. I will quite happily describe myself as fat, not a problem because I am
0: it's not a bad But thing. I don't understand when it when it became a a bad word it's one that's always perplexed me it's like I mean most most words you know like what you were saying earlier about queer that you know mm. people use that horribly and, and I, I don't I know I, well we
1: we assign so much it's so fascinating especially as a language student like so fascinating that what we assign to words the fact we have swear words It's so bizarre to me that we give power to language in that way. Um, And, and things like words like fat um, and, you know, lots of language that's involved in diet culture and, and that triggers a lot of eating disorders and things like that. Um, It's so bizarre to me that as humans, we've, we've developed this, we've allowed it to have this power over us. So I think again, as a language student, I'm like, right, I'm going to fight this. (laughs) Yeah,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Which is why I love your Instagram name so much. I think that's, I think it's brilliant. Thank you. I was inspired by a few other Instagram accounts that,
1: that, you know, like, um, I think one was one fat hot babe and I was like, hell yeah.
0: (laughs) Well Alice it's been absolutely lovely to talk to you um I feel like I've learned a lot and also done just just a lot of like internal reflecting I think I'm gonna go and away and journal now um oh yeah a lot to yeah I like a good journal so thank you so much um Pleasure. yeah it's been brilliant to talk to you and you thank you for having me I hope you found this week's podcast with Alice as interesting as I did. I think I learned so much, especially about sexuality and how that can relate to disordered eating as an outlet for how people might be feeling. I also really enjoyed discussing medication and therapy with her, as I think that's something that's so much more common nowadays, but still people aren't as open to talk about it, so it was really nice to reflect on her experiences. Next week, we'll be joined by Rob Donaldson. Rob's daughter is currently an inpatient with anorexia and we talk about his role as a father and how he's managed to navigate a difficult time but also keep his head above water and be able to support his daughter.
1: It'll be fine. Don't worry, it'll be fine. Of course it'll be fine. It's just a little blip. There's the denial, there's the just putting your head in the sand, there's the not wanting to believe it's true. All these things happen at the start, and
0: it's only after a period of time. You can't just switch on and be an expert and supporting somebody with an eating disorder. It takes time to get your head around it. That's dads, they want to, and males, I suppose. You
1: hide your emotions, push them down, think about everybody else other than yourself try to reassure people that i will be okay when inside you're feeling that it's not going to be I don't think I'll be alone in those sensations but two years down the line it's just the realisation that as a dad you're you're not going to be able to fix it but you just have to perform another role.
0: If you enjoyed listening today you won't want to miss next week's episode so be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses but with the right support they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.